Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And welcome to Cresta in the Afternoon, where we talk about the things that matter most. And no, this is not El Cresta. This is Gary Machuda singing in for the great El Cresta. Many of you might be familiar with my work in Catholic apologetics, defending the faith. I've written several books, including my latest one, which is The Gospel Truth, how we can know what Christ really taught by Mayus Road Press. Also, um, I work with uh, handsonapologetics.com, and I run a YouTube channel along with William Albrecht and David Zavaris called The Apocrypha Apocalypse, where we talk all things Old Testament, Deuterocanon, and why there are seven books in Catholic and Orthodox Bibles that aren't found in Jewish and Protestant Bibles. But enough about me. Let's talk about the things that matter most. We got a great show today in the second hour. Today is the Feast of Saints Timothy and Titus. And this was uh, traditionally also the Feast of the Martyrdom of St. Polycarp. So we're going to talk about all of the above. Saints Timothy, Titus, Polycarp, Paula, with our good friend Rob Corzine from the St. Paul Center in uh, Steubenville, Ohio. Also in the second hour, we're going to talk about the importance of prayer. You know, especially for people who do ministry or work in an apostolate, it's really easy to forget the importance and primacy of prayer in everything we do. And that affects every aspect of ministry, every aspect of our personal life. So we're going to focus on the importance of prayer with convert Brian Topham in this hour. We're going to talk to one of the triumvirate over at uh, CrossTheTiber.org. Brian, uh, excuse me, Ben Handelman is going to be joining us. We're going to talk about the importance of the gospel and justification. Two things that I think Catholics are often confused, maybe never even heard of justification. We're going to talk about that very important topic. And also in this hour, we're going to talk about mortal sin. How hard is it to commit mortal sin? Is it almost impossible? Is it as easy as falling off a log? Well, we're going to talk with staff apologist with Catholic Answers, Joe Heschmeyer, about that very topic. So we got a lot in store for us. But before we begin, let's go to today's headlines with Dan McGrew. Thank you, Gary, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Friday, January 26th. It's the Feast of Saints Timothy and Titus. And today's news is brought to you by the Ave Maria Family of Funds at AveMariaFunds.com. The Archbishop of Port-au-Prince says six Catholic nuns who were kidnapped in Haiti have been released. The Archbishop confirmed the release of the nuns and other hostages in a statement on Wednesday. Gunmen reportedly hijacked the bus last week and took all of its passengers hostage. The Archbishop didn't give details on who is responsible for the kidnapping or if a ransom had been paid. A potential federal standoff is brewing between Texas and the White House over the use of razor wire at the border. The Texas National Guard is adding more fencing along the Rio Grande section of the U.S.-Mexico border. 
This after the Supreme Court sided with the Biden administration that Texas had overstepped its authority and agreed that federal agents can't cut it down. The United Nations top court is telling Israel it must prevent acts of genocide. The International Court of Justice stopped short of ordering a total ceasefire Friday when it issued its initial ruling on South Africa's claim that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza. The court also ordered Israel to take provisional measures, such as allowing humanitarian aid to reach Palestinians. And you aren't you when you're hungry, or when you find a rodent's tooth inside your candy bar. A Mississippi woman is considering filing a lawsuit after she allegedly discovered a rodent's tooth inside a Snickers candy bar. Peyton Davis claims she purchased the candy bar back in November from a family dollar store. After biting into the candy, Davis said she felt something hard and spit it into her hand. She then took the object to a dentist who said it was probably a rodent's tooth. Davis has hired an attorney to possibly file a lawsuit. From the AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw. And welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Gary Machuda sitting in for Great El Cresta. And uh, we're going to talk about mortal sin. You know, mortal sin is pretty much in the books. Uh, there are three conditions for mortal sins. You think it'd be pretty straightforward, but how you interpret those conditions can make uh, committing a mortal sin almost impossible. Almost a, a mass murder would be the only one that would be able to commit mortal sin. And even then, that would be dicey. Or it could be interpreted other ways that uh, maybe it would be very easy to commit moral sin. Well, help us navigate those waters, we have Joe Heschmeyer with us. He's a staff apologist for Catholic Answers and an author of three books. The most recent is The Early Church is the Catholic Church. He blogs at shamelesspopery.com. And Joe, welcome to Crest in the Afternoon. Thanks. It's good to be here. Yeah, Joe, this is a great topic. Uh, I appreciate your article that you put out on this because uh, there's been lots of people who have looked at the criteria for mortal sin and interpreted in such ways that practically no one commits mortal sin. So maybe we should start by defining, like, what exactly are the parameters to consider a sin mortal? Yeah, right. So you, you alluded to the fact that there are three conditions. One is called grave matter. It just means what you're doing is seriously wrong. But the And so that's the easy part in, in a certain way. That's kind of the objective dimension where you can look at your neighbor doing something and say, ah, that's not what the gospel says you should do. The harder ones to judge and the ones that in a certain way are known only to God uh, relate to the level of knowledge and the level of consent that you have. Because, of course, we know if somebody's forced to do something against their will or, you know, you, you push somebody into their neighbor, that's not the same as them assaulting their neighbor because there's no act of the will there, or if, you know, you move your arm and unintentionally hit somebody, you're not guilty of, of striking them. And so it's not enough to say it's a serious action. You also have to say the serious action was chosen by the person freely, and that it was done uh, with knowledge, that it was not something that they should have done. Or in this case, we could say that they knew or they should have known uh, better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so of those three, I imagine the the knowledge aspect would be the one that would be the most dicey. Yeah, both knowledge and consent can be dicey in different ways. So, mm-hmm. you know, think about Jesus on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's making a plea to a, a lack of sufficient knowledge there. 
And St. Peter says something similar, that if they'd known the truth, they wouldn't have condemned Christ. And so there's some hope expressed even for those who've put Jesus to death. The other area, and I think in, in recent decades and maybe the last century or so, there's been a lot more focus here, is on the level of consent because of things like addiction and compulsion and, and that sort of thing. So there's some psychological waters we're trying to chart in terms of saying, okay, maybe Mr. Smith knew what he was doing was wrong, but if he's legitimately addicted, what does that mean in terms of his ability to, to choose this? And is there a difference between physical addiction and psychological? All of us to say the application of the three principles mm-hmm. can often be a little more tricky than just knowing, well, here are the three ingredients, as it were, to a mortal sin. Yeah. In, in your article, you mentioned, uh, 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 I believe it was a priest, wasn't it, that uh, yes, uh, he took those into Jim consideration? Rude. Yeah, that it was almost impossible <laughs> to commit a murder. Yeah. He, it's, it's actually it was a really tragic kind of article, because he was looking back on his time as a teenager, which he was going to confession weekly, and this is good. This is something the Church encourages. The, the practice of regular confession, whether it's weekly or biweekly or monthly, this is something that's really good. And in fact, the Church has been really clear over and over and over again that mortal sin is not just for mortal sinners. Devotional confession is actually something that's good, because you receive these sanctifying graces through the sacrament that help you to grow in holiness. Uh, but this priest was looking back on this saying, well, Basically, he'd wasted his time because he, he was much less free than he thought he was, and he, he didn't really know back then uh, the truth of things. But in the article, he, he basically makes it so, unless you are making a kind of declaration, I don't want you anymore, God, mm-hmm. that you can't commit a mortal sin. And on that note, Pope John Paul II quite explicitly denies that that, that kind of threshold is what's necessary. You don't need to go through a song and dance of saying, I don't love you. Because as JP2 points out, your actions are already saying that. That your actions are saying you want something else more than you want God, even if the whole time you're doing it, you're talking to yourself about how holy you are and how much you love God. Otherwise, we'd have to say the Pharisees weren't serious sinners, and Jesus seems to treat them as quite serious sinners. Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, y- you know, by putting the the threshold so high that it, it would almost be, <laughs> you know, I I would say very few people would actually uh, reach that threshold. Um, it it you don't need that kind of intellectual uh, <laughs> right. jumping through loops, right? It, it, ultimately, it's your yeah, actions I mean, that it, show it. The, the kind of vision of salvation he presents is one in which the gate to hell is very narrow and hard to enter, and there's a broad road to heaven. Yeah. But Jesus has it quite the other way around, that it's it's much easier to go the wrong way than it is to go the right way. And it's much easier, in a sense, to sin than it is to, to act justly. Because even if you know, I need to act justly towards my neighbor, I need to love him, I need to love my God, I need to walk humbly with him, those things sound great, they're easy to say, you might intellectually get them, but living those out, as anyone who's ever seriously tried to do it can attest, is, is often quite difficult. And so the kind of spiritual malpractice of telling people that it's, it's very hard to commit a mortal sin and, and virtually impossible to commit a mortal sin um, is that people don't take that spiritual fight as seriously as they should when Jesus, in telling us that the gate is narrow, is clearly trying to encourage us to fight quite hard for salvation, quite, quite, quite hard for holiness, 
Uh, and so it's just remarkable kind of contrasting the two pastoral styles, if you will, mm-hmm. of this priest and of Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah, this sounds a lot, and you actually mentioned it in your article, like uh, something that was popular, I don't know if it still is, but it was, you know, maybe a decade or so, about the fundamental option that you could commit yeah. adul- adultery but still fundamentally opt to, you know, be faithful to your wife so it's not really a mortal sin. Right. <laughs> so it, it's the idea that mortal sin changes our whole destination, and therefore it takes this very dramatic sort of action. And so it takes a, a fundamental, sometimes it's even described as a pre-moral kind of decision, mm-hmm. that you have an orientation for or away from God. And so the person whose basic orientation is in the direction of God, even if they commit these sins that are otherwise mortal sins, well, as long as the orientation's in basically the right direction, you're good to go. And, and this is something that Pope John Paul II really very clearly cracked down on and said, this is not how moral theology works, this is not accurate at all. Uh, the encyclical Veritatis Splendor spends a great deal of time showing why this is wrong. Uh, his uh, writing on reconciliation and penance does as well. Mm-hmm. I'm fond of a line Cardinal Renze had that, you know, you only need to run somebody over once. You don't have to <laughs> run them over every day. There's that You can kill someone through one action. And likewise, you can kill your soul through one action. That's the whole nature of mortal sin. So, you know, you can go most of the day without running anybody over. But that one action is really going to be the defining feature in that day. And we all understand that on basically an intuitive level, that some things really are life-or-death decisions. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. You kind of have to study your way out of that intuitive uh, understanding of, of right and wrong. You know, Joe, if, if it's, uh, you know, some people make it almost impossible to commit a moral sin, is there a flip side to it? Is it possible to yeah. be too scrupulous? That's, yes. And in fact, we, if you, the Catholic Encyclopedia has a great article on what's called scrupulousness. And this is often, I think this is often less a manifestation of any kind of moral theology and more sort of um, obsessive-compulsive tendencies applied to moral theology. So think about, you know, the physical form of OCD is often, you know, things like washing your hands a lot, because you become really concerned with germs. And there's a spiritual version of this, where you become really concerned with sin, and even venial sin, so that you become really obsessive about that fight against venial sin in a way that can be really deeply unhealthy, and isn't what we actually believe. So you know, the fact that you, uh, maybe you said your prayers and you misspoke one of the words, that's not a sin. You're not trying to dishonor God. It doesn't invalidate your rosary if you accidentally had nine instead of ten. You know, those kind of things where people can become very worried about that, that's not something uh, that the Church tells you to worry about. It's not something Jesus tells you to worry about. And so if you find yourself tending in that direction, uh, that's not something that is encouraged uh, by God. Now, as I said, in many cases, there may be a psychological thing underlying that, and in which case you're not going to be able to just kind of spiritually counsel someone out of that. But if someone has become so maybe fixated on God's holiness and their own unworthiness that this becomes this kind of fear and this kind of crippling thing, don't lose sight of God's love for you. You know, there was a, a heresy called Jansenism that took very seriously God's holiness, took very seriously the nature of sin, but it really went too far in the other direction, 
and made it seem like virtually impossible to ever get to heaven. And that's too far in the opposite extreme. And in response to that, Jesus gives us uh, the devotion of the Sacred Heart to remind us that, yeah, he loves you. He's not trying to trick you. He's not trying to trap you. And so the fact that, yes, you can go astray through your own actions doesn't mean uh, that, you know, you doing your best to serve and love God, he's going to then reject you because you didn't cross all of the T's properly despite your best efforts. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, of course, you know, scrupulosity, that sometimes is very difficult to deal with, and it ultimately could end up in despair. So uh, right. I imagine the flip side of that, if it's almost impossible to commit a moral sin, uh, what would that be? Presumption? Yeah, so you can suffer from presumption and despair. Those are the two classic spiritual vices, and they're opposite extremes. Mm-hmm. Well, presumption, kind of feeling like you're going to go to heaven no matter what you do, or virtually no matter what you do, and despair that you're going to go to hell no matter what you do, or virtually no matter what you do. And the reality is God desires your salvation, and he gives you the graces necessary to be saved, and more than that, he gives you abundant graces. And all he asks is for you to cooperate with his plan of salvation. Uh, St. Augustine, in his commentary on the Psalms, says that uh, God who made you without you will not save you without you, that he wants you to cooperate in your own salvation, uh, not by your own efforts apart from him, but by giving you the graces needed to be saved. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Well, Joe, thank you so much for coming on Crust in the Afternoon. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Joe Heschmeyer, uh, Catholic.com, staff apologist. He also has a fantastic blog, Seamus Popery. More to come on Crest in the Afternoon right after this. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. If you've ever bought a plant at a garden center, you know most flowers and vegetables require at least six hours a day of direct sun. Sure, you can plant them in a shady spot without killing them, but it's not like they're going to thrive if you do. Well, researchers say that to really thrive, most families need 10 to 15 hours of working, playing, talking, and praying together every week. That's why family time is the foundation of the liturgy of domestic church life. If your family isn't getting enough time to connect, then it might be time to rearrange your schedule. You don't need to cancel everything that you're doing, but start scheduling regular appointments for family meals, prayer, and recreation a few months out, gradually building up to a healthier lifestyle. To learn more about living the liturgy of domestic church life, check out our books, Parenting Your Kids with Grace and Parenting Your Teens and Tweens with Grace, or visit CatholicHOM.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. We were made for spiritual greatness. The divine image is in every person, however dimly seen in some. God gave man a spiritual and immortal soul. From the first moment in the womb, he or she is destined for eternal life with God. Man, by his reasoning, is capable of understanding the order the Creator has established. By our will, we are capable of aligning ourselves with our true good, which is where we find our perfection. Reason provides recognition of God's voice directing us toward good and avoiding evil. The law of God is made known by our conscience and is fulfilled by the love of God and love of neighbor. Because our first parents sinned, we suffer the wound of original sin. Thus, while we still desire good, we are inclined toward evil and subject to error. 
This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. He was a doctor of the church and one of the most famous saints of all time. Matthew Bunsen and the Doctors of the Church. St. Augustine is honored for his immense contributions to theology, but he balanced his genius with humility. Once declared it was pride that changed angels into devils, it is humility that makes men as angels. He died in 461. For more about the Doctors of the Church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Accidents are the leading cause of life-threatening injuries, but few Americans are prepared. My Life Angels creates your pro-life healthcare durable power of attorney accessible anytime on smartphones and alerts loved ones if you enter a hospital ER, empowering them to protect you. You can protect yourself and your family. Use code AVE at checkout today and My Life Angels will donate 35% of your initial membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at mylifeangels.com. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. And welcome to Cresta. In the afternoon, I'm Gary Machida sitting in for El Cresta. The doctrine in which the church stands or falls, calling to Martin Luther, is the doctrine of justification. And I know for a lot of Catholics, myself included, before I got into apologetics, I didn't have a clue what justification was and, and what its relationship is to the gospel. And because of that, it wasn't very good sharing and defending the faith with uh, separated brethren. So it's important for us Catholics to understand these issues and help us get a better grasp of the gospel and justification. We have Ben Handelman with us. Ben is a former Baptist who converted to Catholicism. He's part of a triumvirate over at CrossTheTiber.org, a fantastic ministry. I'm sure we're going to be able to talk a little bit about that. He also serves as a lector at his parish and moderator on the Catholicism Discord server. He currently lives in Arizona with his wife, Erin, and their children, the cats. And Ben Handelman, welcome to Crest in the Afternoon. Gary, how are you doing today? I am doing fantastic. How are you, Ben? Great, great. Always glad to, uh, to join you. Yes, absolutely. Especially, this is your wheelhouse, because you're the man at CrossTheTiber.org when it comes to issues like justification, gospel, faith, stuff like that. Well, certainly, um, when, and a lot of the reason I started Cross the Tiber is because when you have a background, especially as an evangelical, justification is not just to Martin Luther's point, like the doctrine the the Church turns on, but but anything related to the faith. If we're not justified 
most Protestants would look at, like, well, what's the point? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the whole point is, I want to avoid going to hell. And I, I, I think most people, if we really dug into that, would disagree. But that, that's what it often breaks down to. Right. Yeah. Uh, and Yeah, you know, I, it's funny because uh, I, I went to a countercult seminar. It was put on by evangelicals. And the person there basically said, when it comes to getting to heaven, it doesn't matter what you believe on any topic. If you don't know how to get to heaven, you know, that's the ball game. And I thought that was an interesting kind of uh, picture into it, the way of thinking. Um, for now, as as a much older man than I used to be, um, <laughs> I often think that's a bit reductionist to, I mean, in particular the Catholic faith. Um, but I even think most kind of uh, more mature Protestants would be a bit uncomfortable if if it's like, well, all that matters is I don't go to hell. It's like, well, no, all that matters is that you love and follow God. And and here are the consequences from those things, and why we why we love and follow Him, and and not going to hell is great. None of us want to go there, um, but there definitely is kind of um, I'm going to call it a fear based aspect to the faith, right? And this mm-hmm. was true in the time of uh, of the apostles. Um, that was certainly something that Saint Paul brought up. It's been true throughout history, um, but I think in particular. Um, with Protestants and the evangelical side in particular, this is a very important and kind of something that is discussed regularly and often. Um, and it even you'll even see it kind of expand out to like where a lot of the conversations about Mary. Oh well, if Mary was sinless, then why did why do we even need Jesus? Mm-hmm. And it's like whoa 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 whoa! Like Mary could have died for our sins, and it's like no 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 no! Well, slow down, slow down. You don't seem to understand how justification works if that's what you really think. Right? It wasn't like, well, you just needed one basic uh, sinless person, and that was good enough for everybody. That's not, that's not why Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection mattered. It's not just he died for our sins as a sacrifice. There's much more to it than that. And unfortunately, a lot of evangelicals will get kind of stuck. And, I, and again, I, I single out evangelicals because I used to be one, and in particular, if you'd go talk to a Methodist or a Presbyterian, um, let, let's call them the more traditional Presbyterians. Um, if you go talk to a Lutheran, maybe justification isn't so often that first thing they want to discuss. But in particular for evangelicals, and non-denominationals get really upset when you call them evangelicals, So, mm-hmm. and the non-denominationals, um, this will be kind of the key thing about um, why maybe Protestants believe Catholics aren't Christians, why they can't... Um, do like charity things with Catholics or can't do like outreach programs with Catholics, why mission programs aren't allowed to work with Catholics. If you talk to a Todd Friel or a James White or a Mike Winger, like these are the kind of the sticking points, right? It's mm-hmm. it's justification. Um, they believe that's the whole gospel tied into this one doctrine. Right. Yeah. So why don't we uh, define exactly what do we mean when we talk about justification? So justification itself um in a theological sense, is to make right-wise, to make correct, right? So before you're justified, you're incorrect, right? You're, you're out of alignment with God, and justification kind of pulls you into alignment so that you're on the right path. Um, in, in kind of modern English, we use just like, oh, he's, he's justifying why he did something, and it often sounds like you're making an excuse. This is a very much more specific idea, the idea that we are being made correct, like, like um reformed into something that is correct that was incorrect before. Okay. 
Yeah, so um, so it's this process by which we move from being estranged from God to being acceptable to God. I guess that would be the bottom line, right? Exactly. And yeah. so the idea is, like, before we're justified, we're, uh, we're so whether we're sinful creatures because of original sin, our actions, um, our entire lives are kind of oriented in a different way. So now we're in line with what God wants from us, and that's what allows us to kind of become in union with him in the biblical sense, right? We become a member of the body of Christ. Um, when, we, uh, when we leave this earth, we, um, we pass into um, kind of the uh, beatific vision, right? Like the idea of we're, we're purified and we're made one with Christ hmm. in that sense. And if that's kind of the goal, to go to heaven, justification is what allows that to happen. Okay. So how does justification occur? So traditionally, we would look at, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of verses in the Bible that talk about justification. I think um, very, it's very simple, right? Mm-hmm. Your faith in God and then baptism are what changes you, right? So there's something that, as Catholics, we believe that um, at baptism, we are, we're washed of our sins, we're made one with Christ, um, with his body, right? So that's how we enter the church. And this allows us to kind of move in that path, move towards what God is asking of us. And um, as part of that baptism, so a lot of evangelicals go, oh, it's, you're saying baptism, but what about faith? What about faith? Well, as you and I both know, baptism doesn't count if you don't have faith, right? There's something, something's required of you during baptism, and so you must have faith, and then when you're baptized, it changes you. And there, there is, of course, the important distinction with baptism of desire. So if you have faith in Christ, you, you believe that he died for our sins, you believe in God um, wanting to be, you know, to follow his path, and then you're driving to the parish to get baptized on Easter Vigil, and you get hit by a bus. God, God understands that you desire to be baptism, and so that desire will count towards your baptism. So that would be um, what the Church has traditionally called the baptism of desire. Okay. And this was affirmed for, for those who may be of a more traditional leaning. This was affirmed at the Council of Trent in Session 7 in a section called On Baptism. So anyone's welcome to go look that up and kind of find uh, the specific canon where it outlines it. Right. Yeah, so uh, that would be a special example of that would be the good thief on the cross, right? Of course. Yep. Right. So on the um, and this is something we always like to to point to is there's two thieves on the cross, right? Mm-hmm. There's one, probably not justified as far as we know. We have no reason to believe from the gospel that he came to the faith. Um, but the good thief, he recognized Christ and who he was and what Christ was doing in that moment. Christ told him he would be in heaven that day. So we know that baptism of desire is a this is a dogma of the church that we believe. There there have been historically, um, unfortunately, some groups that have rejected it, um, the Jansenists, the Feniites, but um, there's, there's some modern set of Acontist groups, maybe. But as Catholics, we understand that this is a thing that occurs. So often, when we're talking to Protestants about it, um, we're generally in alignment in regards to the faith being kind of the, the key aspect here, right? Your faith is going to lead you to baptism. Um, their understanding of baptism is wrong, but, but generally that idea of, like, it's our faith that kind of leads us here. Mm-hmm. And most Protestants would agree that our faith starts with um, the Holy Spirit kind of awakening a desire inside us, 
we recognize that we're in an incorrect state, that we're not, um, we're not living our lives the way God would want us to. We're not doing things to please Him. We come to the faith, then we get baptized, and now the process of justification begins. And, and there's another key difference, because Protestants, and in particular evangelicals, will go, oh, well, as soon as you come to the faith, you're, you're, you're saved forever. And that isn't the way we would look at it as Catholics. What we would look at is there's a process that has now begun. So the moment you come to the faith, God starts changing something inside of you. Um, there's an actual change occurring. This is not just like a high-minded idea. We're not just being covered over. We're being made holy. Over time, as we live our lives, as we continue to do the things God asks for us, we, we go to church, um, on, we go to Mass on Sundays, we take communion, we live out the sacraments, we do things like the corporal works of mercy and help our fellow man. As we continue to live out our faith, we're made more and more holy, so that when, at the end of our life, when we die, that process has now occurred. And then well, there's purgatory for most of us, I'm assuming. Um, we go through purgatory to be made pure, and then from there we enter into heaven with God. This is kind of a lifelong thing, because as much as I can say I intend right now to never fall away from the faith— I don't know what I'll do in 10, 15, 20 years, realistically. Right. I, I, I know I've held fast this far. Um, but often Protestants will say, well, oh, you know, well, if you slip up a little bit, now you're not going to heaven. As Catholics, we don't believe that, right? We, you know, God is merciful. We understand. That's why we have confession. Um, that's why we have the sacraments to kind of keep reminding us to live out our faith. Um, but just like when someone gets married— uh, no one, when they get married, intends to cheat on their spouse, right, like while they're standing at the altar making their vows. I mean, we say no one. There's some bad people in the world. But most, most people that eventually get divorced, they don't intend to get divorced when they get married. Mm -hmm. They think the marriage is going to last forever. And then, unfortunately, divorce happens in, um, I believe the current statistics is about 35% of weddings in the United States, marriage, um, end in, you know, marriages end in divorce. Well, just like with the faith, we all know people that came to the faith and fell away. So we can't be sure that that person will stay till the end, and that's that process of justification. It's a, that's why it's a lifelong process. It, it's something that continues to happen to you throughout. And we see examples in Scripture where it talks about this is something that's going to continue throughout our lives. We're continuing to be made holy. All right. Yeah. Very good. Okay. We're chatting with Benjamin Handelman of CrossTheTiber.org, talking about the gospel and justification. We've got a lot more to talk about on the other side of the break. You listen to Crust in the Afternoon. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Accidents are the leading cause of life-threatening injuries, but few Americans are prepared. My Life Angels creates your pro-life healthcare durable power of attorney. 
accessible anytime on smartphones, and alerts loved ones if you enter a hospital ER, empowering them to protect you. You can protect yourself and your family. Use code AVE at checkout today, and My Life Angels will donate 35% of your initial membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at MyLifeAngels.com. Father Benedict Rochelle. I must tell you that from what I observe from very young people, all of these blasphemers, all of these mockers are in for a tough time. Because the devil bites his own tail. And I find among young people a growing reverence and longing for God. I find a decline in the cynicism and skepticism around. Because it had to destroy itself. No one can live on being an enemy of God. It's too crazy. It's too absurd. It's too dark. It's too bleak. God is beautiful. God is holy. Why in the world mock God? The people you know and trust are on EWTN. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. How are we treating God? Are we treating him like a magic wand, a rabbit's foot, only going to him when we need something? The results, if we don't stay in a relationship with God, and I know this from personal experience, much of the suffering that I had in my life has been brought on by my own stupid mistakes. We have to have God front and center of our life every day. As Father Michael Schmidt says, we're all called to be saints. We have to stand up and fight. We can't just grab God when we need something. He's not a slot machine. Putting coins in, then pulling the one-armed bandit and expecting to win a big prize. We have to have that relationship with God so we can truly do his will and be truly happy. So follow him, not just once in a while, but every single moment. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio. ...teaches that Jesus Christ is literally and wholly present, body and blood, soul and divinity, under the appearances of bread and wine. In the Bread of Life Discourse, documented in John chapter 6, Jesus states that He is the bread of life, and that His flesh is true food and His blood true drink. The Jews were scandalized in verse 52. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus does not back down, but reiterates this teaching four more times over the next four verses. Many left in verse 66 because this teaching was truly difficult. But at no point does Jesus water down his teaching and call them back. No, he allows them to leave, and even questions his 12 apostles if they too wish to leave. Jesus intended to be understood literally, and the Jews, apostles, and the Catholic Church absolutely take him at his word. Examining the truths of the Catholic faith, this is faithforensics.org. Welcome to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Gary Machuda sitting in for El Cresta. We're talking about the gospel and justification with Ben Handelman of CrossTheTiber.org. And Ben, great explanation of that process by which we start off estranged from God in sin. Through faith and baptism, we're united and changed. And then we live a life of uh, 
growing in holiness and repentance, and then finally, you know, at the end, uh, we reach our final destination, depending on our final state. You know, before the break, you mentioned that there is a thought in Protestantism, and of course, we don't want to paint with a broad brush because there's many different conceptions, but of, you know, once saved, always saved, that once you're justified by faith alone, there's nothing that you can do to change that status. Is that because they don't believe there's an interior change that occurs within us in justification? So that's, and as you said, we need to be careful about the broad brush thing, because there's yeah. there's so many views. I mean, even in evangelical Protestantism, you have um, kind of a scholarly uh, thought like uh, the new perspective on Paul or the apocalyptic perspective on Paul, which actually does appear very close to Catholicism's understanding of justification, and or what I prefer to call the more traditional understanding, because the the various groups of Orthodox pretty much agree with us on justification. Um, they may phrase things a little bit differently, but we're by and large in kind of that same train of thought. Mm-hmm. A lot of it comes back to, or goes back to, I should say, Martin Luther, who you mentioned at the beginning. Um, Martin Luther was extremely scrupulous. He struggled with kind of this idea that um, he could ever be saved because he always felt sinful. So he would go to confession constantly, and it always felt like he was just never quite in line. And then he, he takes something Paul says out of context, and he goes, oh, well, you know what? It says, like, no one can take you away uh, from the hand of God, therefore that must mean we're always justified no matter what we do, and therefore I don't have to worry about it anymore. But because I'm still sinful, well, how do I explain that? If I'm, if I'm already perfect and I can't fall away, how do I explain that I have um, – and to be clear, I – I'm not sure Martin Luther was a once-saved-always-saves kind of guy, so I'm I'm putting words in his mouth, so to speak, as we kind of discuss this. Um, There are, you know, traditional Lutherans did believe apostasy was the only way you could lose the faith, or uh, fall away. And so the idea was, like, well, how how can that be—how can these two things be true? How can I be saved right now, but also I'm still committing sin? And so that's where he kind of came up with the idea that, you know— And he's using a lot of legal language, which makes sense, because, you know, uh, the the Bible uses legal language. Paul uses legal language for part of it. And this idea that, well, you know, um, the Judgment Day, we're standing at trial, and um, if we're being, you know, tried for our sins, we're all guilty. So how can we possibly be saved if I'm guilty right now of my sins? Oh, well, Christ was judged for me. He died on the cross. The Bible talks about how he, he's the, the sacrifice on the cross for our sins, so all our sins are taken away. So when God looks at us in that, um, while we're, you know, we're in trial and, and God's the judge and he's looking at us, he's not seeing us, he's seeing Christ who's perfect, and therefore we're judged innocent. Hmm. And, uh, you know, so this would be um, imputed righteousness, the idea that, like, Christ's righteousness is covering over for us. And I don't want to say this is completely wrong. It's not. Like, very much Christ did die for our sins. His, his death on the cross did have um, what we would call the atonement, right? The idea that, like, um, as the union is both God and man, he's, he's died for our sins, he's the, um, the Paschal Lamb, right? We, we talk about this at Mass several times, every Mass, right? Mm-hmm. But that minimizes what's actually happening here, right? And what that does is it kind of takes that spiritual element of our faith out. So as Catholics, we understand that we're being changed, we're being made holy, right? This is 
the Bible talks about how we're being made holy, about how about our obedience of faith and how it changes us. Um, and instead, what we're we're kind of looking at is just kind of an instant change. In fact, uh, um, I always like to uh, quote this great author um, who had a line about Luther's train of thought here because it hadn't appeared for fifteen hundred years. And that's not development. That's creation ex nihilo. Um, this, this author, you should have him on the show sometime, Gary Machuda, is great uh, on all these topics. And so the idea is, like, for all of Christian history, we've always believed that faith is how we're justified. Um, it's, but this idea that, like, well, we don't have to live out our faith, this, is, this was a change, right? Well, how can I be justified if I'm not living the way that Christ asked me to? And that even seems to go against Scripture, right? If we look in, you know, the, the, the obvious places, for example, like James 2. James 2 seems pretty clear you need to live out the faith. It's, 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 it's explicit, in fact. Um, it uses the same example that Paul uses in Romans of Abraham living out the faith. And, you know, so James 2.22 is the line I always like to point to to kind of make me question um, some of these thoughts, because in James 2.22, and this is using the ESV translation, which is a Protestant evangelical translation, it says, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. So there's, there's more than just kind of a, a belief that allows you to now be saved, and then you don't have to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to be careful here, because the vast majority of Christians are not um, what we would call antinomian, what, what the, those who do believe this, they would call themselves free grace. The vast majority of Christians disagree with this teaching. If I go talk to a Calvinist or a Reformed person and accuse them of believing that you don't have to have any part of your faith, you just say you believe and now you're saved, they would be very upset. Mm-hmm. But that's because even for once saved, always saved, there's multiple trains of thought. So we just handled the free grace kind of explanation that once you say you're saved, Christ stands in for you, and then you don't have to worry about anything else. On the Reformed side, there's a bit more nuance to it, and it's not that far from what we believe. It's not too far from what Augustine stated. And so the, it, it's the idea that, well, not everyone who says they're a Christian will die a Christian and saved. And therefore, only the true Christians have that perseverance, which is the language used in the Bible, but then they kind of like tie that back in. So you're saved at the moment of justification if you're a real Christian. But if you're not going to be, if you're not going to die a Christian, therefore at the moment of justification, you weren't ever actually justified. You were a fake Christian this whole time. And they're taking that from places like in 2 Corinthians when Paul talks about, um, you know, uh, false apostles and things like that. And that would be kind of a very antithetical understanding for the Catholic faith. We don't, we don't believe that. We believe Paul was talking about people that were pretending to be Christian to get money, which is a problem we very much have today. I don't want to name any names. There's a lot of these people. If, if you see a preacher on TV and they're asking for you to donate a ton of money and they're living in a mansion, probably one of those people is who Paul was referring to. Mm-hmm. This is more, they're saying like, okay, well, you, you come to the faith, And uh, maybe you live as a Christian for 10, 20, 50 years, I don't know, and you fall away at a later point, that must mean you were never a Christian at all. Because Christians are justified, and then they persevere to the end. That doesn't mean you you don't have to live out your faith, but the idea is if you don't live out your faith, then you were never a real Christian in the first place. And then the question becomes, well, how do you know you're a real Christian? And uh, that's not a question I can answer. This has been a pretty major problem for a good portion of uh, Protestant 
um, the existence of kind of like Reformed thought in Protestantism, though. Um, in fact, if you go look at a lot of the things that happened with the Puritans, this was a pretty major issue. And unfortunately, it often gets tied to, oh, well, well how do you see in your life? Um, it, are you successful in life? Then that mean, it must be a sign that God has blessed you and you're a good Christian. Are you having a difficult life? Well, maybe you're not a real Christian then. Hmm. Um, so again, I, know, I'm not, I don't want to paint with a broad brush here, but if you go look at the Institutes written by Calvin— that is how he says you judge um, if someone is a Christian or not, and or a true Christian, we should say. Now, most modern Christians would kind of like be very uncomfortable with that phrasing or that kind of way of going through, because, I mean, even in the the apostles didn't exactly live happy lives or successful ones after um, after Jesus, right? Uh, we we have, I mean, Paul Paul didn't die in a very um, glorious moment, if you will, right? Like. St. Peter was crucified. Like, many of the—most of the apostles, all but one of them, were killed, murdered, brutally tortured. Um, so kind of using this as a measuring stick, I think most modern Protestants would be uncomfortable with. Um, but it does become a difficult question. On the Catholic side, we look at, well, how are you living your life? It's not about how successful are you. It's about what are you—it's it's internal. It's you. What are you doing? Are you living out the faith? Because that's what's kind of key. Is faith isn't just a, a an intellectual assent. Faith is a sense of loyalty. You've turned your life towards God. Mm-hmm. If we look at the original word for faith in the Greek, uh, pistos, this was used in that culture of the day in first century Palestine and in the Roman province, not the modern, you know, kind of area there, but the the original Roman province. This was about a kind of a client-patron relationship. This was a loyalty. You changed your loyalty. You reoriented your life to something. So if you became a patron of um, – or if you, you uh, became a client of a patron, the idea is like he adopts you, but that means you, you're, he, you, there's something in return you're giving there. So part of our faith is giving that in return, and that's what we see St. James talking about there. We see Paul talking about it in Galatians 5-6 when he talks about faith working through love. And this idea that, like, okay, now I've given my life to Christ, what does that mean? That means I do my best to live as he has asked of me. Right. Yeah, so faith and obedience are just two sides of the same coin, you know, under that perspective. Exactly. So when people say, oh, well, Catholics believe in faith plus works, and I say, no, 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 no. We believe that you can't have faith without works at all. It's, they're, they're, they're two parts of the same coin, as you said. Like, these are, mm. these are connected. So that's why... We see uh, James in, two, in uh, James 2.22 talk about it. We see Paul talk about it. And it, so this isn't about James versus Paul, which is often how you'll, you, you will hear Protestants say that, like, Romans is kind of the key turning point of the New Testament. You interpret the rest of the New Testament through Romans, um, because that's the gospel is Romans. But we, we don't look at it like that. And it's like, look, Paul wrote other letters. We need to read Romans in light of those other letters. We need to read Romans in light of James, because James and Paul— are not disagreeing here. The New Testament doesn't disagree. Like Protestants, we would say that all of Scripture is coherent, it's cohesive, it all works together. There's no contradictions. So if there's no contradictions, then we need to understand that James and Paul and the other apostles and Jesus himself, when he talks in Matthew 25, um, or the Beatitudes, we're, we're kind of understanding that this all works together. And then it becomes very simple. Faith and faith was completed by work, his works. Faith working through love. It's, it's a faith that works. The faith includes works. It's part of the faith. If you don't have the works, that means you don't have the faith. Yeah, 
Yeah, very good. Well, Ben, we're coming up to the end of the segment. Uh, tell us, uh, it, maybe there's people out there that aren't Catholic, that are, are seekers. Maybe they, they want to learn about the faith. Tell us a little bit about the organization. Where can they go to? So uh, I started Cross the Tiber because when I was converting, and in particular on this topic, I talked to a lot of top Catholics about it, and they didn't understand. Either they didn't, they'd never heard of the topic, not, not phrased the way a, a Protestant would, or they didn't understand it in the way a Protestant would, or unfortunately a lot of apologists didn't understand why it was an important question. It just seemed common sense to them. So they would, either, they would gloss over it or kind of go off on tangents that, that don't seem to get to the heart of that matter. Mm-hmm. And then if you go join an RCIA or, or now OCIA program, um, the instructors there, they have no idea. They've, they, these are the kind of topics they're just not used to dealing with. Most of the people coming in, um, I should say most, I, I don't have the numbers, but a lot of people coming in, they're getting married or something like that. That's why they're joining. So we across the Tiber, we answer those questions. We have the backgrounds. We give you the church teaching. We cite the documents. And we kind of help you along with those questions so you can decide about becoming a Catholic. All right. Beautiful. Well, Ben, thank you so much for coming on Crusty in the Afternoon. We appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me, Gary. All right. Ben Handelman, CrossTheTiber.org. We'll be right back right after this. from God. Father Mitch Pacwa shares his experience. I certainly had a bit of opposition. My father wasn't pleased with this at all, and he kept arguing with me. Once when I was 12, he said to me, what do you want to be a priest for? Why don't you be a doctor? You don't have to be a priest to help people. You can be a doctor and get married, have kids. And I said to him then, Dad, if I was a doctor and I help people get better, that would be very good. But later on, they're going to die anyway. So, If I'm a priest and I hear somebody's confession and they go to heaven, that lasts forever. So that's better. And he didn't know what to say. And he continued to oppose the idea over the next years. Yet that didn't stop me. And uh, even when he said, I'm going to disinherit you if you become a priest. And on the day of my first mass, he did. But as I also said to him then, he told me, okay, you're out of my will. I said, Dad, I can't keep it anyway. It doesn't matter. I'm a Jesuit, and we can't keep the money, so it really doesn't affect me. The issue is I'm trying to follow what God, our Lord, is asking of me. And this has been where I have found the greatest joy, that doing what I believe through my own prayer and through reflection and thinking about it and moving from a little boy's idea of what a priest would be like all the way to now in my early 50s, you know, realizing that this is exactly what I think is going to please God the most. And that's what I want to do, to please God. For information on the priesthood or religious life, log on to www.ewtn.com slash religious life. concludes the first hour of Cresta in the afternoon. Uh, I think if there was an overall theme that we've talked about, whether is whether it's almost impossible to commit a mortal sin with Joe Heschmeyer, or talking about justification and trying to uh, square faith and good works and obedience and God's grace, 
I guess would be a sense of balance. And today's society, it's it's really tough to have a per- sense of perspective and balance. And uh, for Catholics, that just means that we just need to be faithful, right? It's so easy to live in the extremes because everything becomes black and white. But often, you know, it's the truth is usually the great balance between you know two extremes, and that's true in terms of coming becoming scrupulous or or presumptive in regards to your relationship with God and moral sin, or it's also true for, you know, presuming that you're justified and a-okay with God regardless of what you do as far as uh, your good deeds or evil deeds, right? It all requires a kind of balance and a willingness to look reality in the face and and call things as they they are. And uh, like I said, it's getting more and more difficult today. So, uh, that concludes the first hour of Crest in the Afternoon. I'm Gary Machuda sitting in for El Cresto. from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I am Gary Machuda sitting in for the great El Cresta. It's great to be with you. Kicking off the second hour, talking about things that matter most. Had a great first hour going to try to keep it going. By the way, you might be wondering who in the world is this Gary Machuda guy? Well, you might be familiar with my work in apologetics. I've been in the field since the early 1990s, written several books, including, and you know, I need to be able to plug this, is my latest book, which is Gospel Truth, How We Can Know What Christ Really Taught by Emmaus Road Press. And you can check out my stuff at handsonapologetics.com. But, you know, that's just my own bio. Let's talk about the things that matter most, because we got a great second hour in store for us. Today is the commemoration of the Saints Timothy and Titus, but traditionally it was also the feast of uh, the martyrdom of St. Polycarp, a very important apostolic father. So in this hour, we're going to be talking with Rob Corzine of the St. Paul Center, and we're going to talk not only about Timothy and Titus, but also Polycarp, Paula, Roman martyrology, all sorts of fun stuff. And also in this hour, we're going to chat with Ben Handelman, who is a convert from the Church of Christ. We're going to talk about the primacy or the importance of prayer. You know, that is such an important feature that especially us Catholics who work in ministry or do a postulate, it's so easy to, uh, I don't want to say skip, but not a fully appreciate the the importance of prayer in everything we do, and including, as mo- probably most especially, in ministry. So Brian Topham's going to be coming up, and we're going to be talking about the importance of prayer. And so, uh, you know, a great one-two punch, talking about saints and prayer. It doesn't get any better than that, in my humble opinion. But before we do all that, we want to go to today's news headlines 
with Dan McGraw. Thank you, Gary, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Friday, January 26th. It's the Feast of Saints Timothy and Titus. And today's news is brought to you by Ave Maria Family of Funds at AveMariaFunds.com. The U.S. is renewing efforts to free the remaining hostages held by Hamas in Gaza. CIA Director William Burns will meet with officials from Israel and Qatar this weekend as the war between Israel and Hamas rages on. This comes as the main hospital in the city of Khan Yunus in the southern part of the region had reportedly ran out of food and anesthesia. The United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. is one of the many places around the world where International Holocaust Remembrance Day will be observed on Saturday. Visitors to the museum on Saturday can read a list of names of victims and survivors, and similar name readings will take place throughout the U.S. and around the world. This year's observance comes with the backdrop of drastic rise in anti-Semitic acts since the start of the Israel-Hamas war. International Holocaust Remembrance Day was designed by the UN to mark the anniversary of the liberation of the Auschwitz concentration camp. The NFL's championship Sunday takes place this weekend. First, the Kansas City Chiefs will take on the Ravens in the AFC Championship in Baltimore. In the NFC Championship, the Detroit Lions will travel to the West Coast to take on the San Francisco 49ers. The winners will meet at Super Bowl 58 in Las Vegas. And today marks four years since basketball legend Kobe Bryant, his daughter, and seven others died in a helicopter crash in Southern California. It happened in Calabasas as they were headed to Gianna Bryant's basketball game. Kobe was a five-time NBA champion during his career with the Los Angeles Lakers. Kobe was 41 at the time of the crash, while Gianna was just 13. From the AveMariaRadio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Welcome back to Crusta in the Afternoon. I'm Gary Machuda sitting in for El Crusta. Prayer. You know, prayer is the lifeblood of our Christian life. It's part of our ministry. It's, it is so important. And, for, and unfortunately, sometimes when things are so important, we just assume that we're A-OK when it comes to praying. And I think there's a big uh, temptation, especially those who do a postulate to kind of forget the the importance of prayer in our work. And to help discuss this, we have Brian Topham with us. Brian is a convert to the Catholic faith from the Church of Christ. He runs a fantastic YouTube channel called Quest for Faith with Brian, where he explains the Catholic faith from a perspective of a newcomer. He also covers his journey into the church and also dives a little deeper into the Catholic faith. It's Again, just go on YouTube, type in Quest for Faith with Brian, and check out all of his great stuff. And Brian, welcome to Crest in the Afternoon. Gary, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, it's always a pleasure to talk with you, especially on this topic, because like I said, uh, you know, it's something that we we kind of assume is part of the air that we breathe, that prayer is important, we ought to be praying. But unfortunately, that sometimes makes it off the radar screen, right? We kind of neglect prayer. Yeah, and I think, I mean, we all struggle with this, right? Like, we either get out of a routine, we try and, the, and schedule things where it's like, okay, I'll do my prayer time in the morning, oh, wait, i got to get get to that meeting, I don't have time to do that today. 
Um, and so I think a lot of times um, it, it really can be put on the back burner. And But I think I've, I've felt this call over the last few months and, I, and it's probably just me, but I think it would go for everybody that we really need to start focusing more on prayer. Mm. And the times we're living in, the chaos we're seeing in the world, um, I mean, I, I just feel that the emphasis on prayer needs to be greater. And uh, and so that that's just kind of uh, where I'm coming from on this topic, for sure. Yeah. So, you know, I'm curious, has your prayer life changed, like, when you were in Church of Christ as opposed to being a Catholic? Yeah, a lot. I mean, I think the the great thing about being Catholic is the Catholic Church gives you so many tools to pray, you know, between the rosary um, and and different types of prayers, the uh, literally the hours, you know, there's a number of different options to pray, and it, they're great tools to get you started. You know, if you mm-hmm. if you have a, have trouble um, either doing meditative prayer or contemplative prayer, um, you know, just going through, starting going through the motions. You know, we always have that saying, fake it till you make it. <laughs> and I, I think that's a, that's a real thing with prayer. Yeah. Um, I, I think a lot of people struggle with it. And and to keep at it and keep, keep pushing yourself to continue to pray, I think, is very important. And I think the Catholic Church does a great job of giving you those tools um, to be able to at least start your journey there on praying. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I remember hearing advice. It might have been Fulton Sheen, but it could be wrong. But there was an atheist who wanted to believe. He just didn't have the faith. And I think the counsel was, well, then pray as if you do have faith. You know, kind of like you said, fake it in a way, because mm-hmm. again, God will will bless that and use that, and ultimately, you know, supply what you lack. So I, I think that's really, really good advice. Yeah, and I think one of the things we need to remember when we're when we're praying is God is constantly calling us; He's constantly seeking us, and I think you see that in other other uh, religions where they're real, like, Eastern religions, really big on meditation, and that's that's still them trying to, to, now we would say they're going about it the wrong way, that's still God calling, and they're answering that call in the, in the wrong way, obviously, but God is constantly seeking us first. Yeah. And if you, if someone hasn't read, anyone listening to this, read, um, Part four, the the Catholic Catechism, the whole thing is just about Christian prayer, and it is amazing the the wisdom of prayer life that is in that. But I, I think that was one of the things when I was uh, converting and reading through the Catechism, I never thought of it that way. That God is always trying to call me, and it's not just me. You know, we we sometimes feel that guilt where we only pray when things are going bad, um, but we got to remember. God's Christ is excited every time we pray to him. Hmm. God is always seeking us. And sometimes that the those uh, signals from God come through a lot stronger and I guess typically is probably when we're when we're in peril. Um like they say there's no atheist in a foxhole as the as the saying goes. Mm-hmm. Um but you know to remember that that God is always seeking us. And so every time that we feel we need to pray we're answering a call. It's not that it's coming from it. It's not coming from us. God is calling us to in communion with Him. 
Yeah, that was one of the mind-blowing things that I discovered with prayer, you know, is the, the desire and the, the uh, carrying out of prayer is actually a product of God's grace. God always takes the first step. And I, mm-hmm. that just blew my mind because, you know, maybe there's people out there that they're wondering, they feel abandoned by God, and they might, like, cry out, where are you, you know? But that's a prayer, which means that God gave them the grace to cry out, where are you? You know, so it shows God is with you. Yeah, and uh, and we're always searching for God. And I think you look throughout human history, whether it, whatever part of the world, and you see that search for God and God calling us to him. And I think it's so important to remember that um, whenever we're we're struggling with prayer life, know that our Father up in heaven is is always listening to us, even when we feel like he's not. You know, my prayers weren't answered. He didn't hear my prayers. Um, to to realize that, yeah, he is hearing your prayers, um, but it's within his graces where, okay, yeah, I'll answer that prayer. Uh, this will happen. It's no, you know, but it's. It's up to us to to continue to fight that battle, to constantly be praying to Him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And sometimes God's answer is no. <laughs> but yeah. I, I think most often God's answer is not yet, you know, and maybe right. He has something different in store. Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of times we get frustrated with, with prayer life thinking, this isn't doing anything, you know, mm-hmm. and really when, when we're praying, it's, it, it's really getting to our hearts. And I think the Catholic catechism says, says it great in uh, paragraph 2563 in, in our hearts is our hidden center beyond the grasp of our reason and others. Only the spirit of God can fathom the human heart and know it fully. And the heart is the place of decision deeper than our psychic drives. It is the place of truth where we will choose life or death. And when we're praying, and you know that the, when the, the Bible says we should continuously pray, um, and just try and be be constantly thinking of God, that's coming. The Holy Spirit's guiding us, and and God's reading our hearts, and knows what's good for us, and knows what direction we need to go uh, to be able to further His kingdom. And you you always have to keep that in mind that it's it's God's plan. You know, it's God's will, not our will. Right. And uh, and I think that's uh, it's it's definitely a challenge sometimes to approach God humbly when you're praying. Yeah, yeah that that commandment to you know always be praying, you know, pray constantly. Um, there's great saints that have been actually literally could accomplish that. They could pray and do their daily work at at the same time. I mean, you know, I'm thinking of uh, Padre Pio. Um, mm-hmm. But for most of us, that's kind of difficult to to have a continuous prayer throughout the day. Yeah, I, I mean, honestly, that I can't do that. I, <laughs> maybe with the grace of God, in another uh, forty years, when I when I'm uh, towards the end of my life here on Earth, uh, I'll be able to accomplish that. But I highly doubt it. But I think with uh, prayer life, uh, I mean, there's so many great resources we can have, and I think. Taking time aside and constantly seeking God as this friend and protector um, is something that we have to battle through, and 
Yeah, I mean, it's just simple things, right? Like, we're working, we're mowing the lawn. Thank, thank you, Lord, for letting me actually be able to do this, right? Mm-hmm. Or we're, we stubbed our toe, or whatever we do, we should be praying and praising God. And, and sometimes that's really difficult. But I think it's the discipline and, and battling through, because the, the tempter, the devil's always going to try to distract us. He's always going to try and pull us away from prayer. Because he knows that prayer life is inseparable from our Christian life, and that battle has to happen for us to continue our walk with Christ and to deepen deepen our spirituality with Him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, did you have set prayers when you were uh, part of the Church of Christ, or was it just no. all extemporaneous? It's all, uh, to, yeah. It's it's there was no such thing as a uh, we we. We would know the Our Father, but we would never pray it in church or anything. Um, it would always have to be from the heart. And, uh, and yeah, growing up Church of Christ, you definitely, we threw out all those, uh, there was no prayers that you would memorize at all. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think in some aspects, it really taught you to pray in a way that, in a spontaneous way, mm-hmm. So and I and I'm noticing this with my kids now that I'm raising them Catholic. Like my youngest has a really hard time praying spontaneously, right? Mm-hmm. Just going to God and just saying a prayer, what's on the top of his head, and it's a lot easier for him to you know say an Our Father or Hail Mary and and, uh, and and go about his day. And so it's something I'm working on with him to be more spontaneous. And I think that that it's it's something that we have to remember as Catholics. Like it's great doing those prayers; they're they're fantastic. Um, but to maybe sit down and there's, you know, the catechism says there's three types of prayers: there's the vocal prayers, meditation, and uh, con- uh, con- contemplative prayer. Sorry, I can't talk today. Um, been a long week, but uh, to really try and work on our mental prayer and our meditation and spending that time just contemplating the greatness of God in prayer. And and just how amazing it is that he loved us as much as he did to send Christ to save us. Yeah. And I, I just think that uh, it, it it's amazing and it's easy for us to get distracted and forget that. Yeah. And yeah. that's the battle we're in on a daily basis. Yeah, and that's the goal prayer, right? It's ultimately yeah you know you want to move up to those higher. Uh, ways of praying. Uh, Well, I hear the music coming up. Brian, we'll have to end it right there. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Gary, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. All right. That's Brian Topham, uh, Quest for Faith with Brian on YouTube. Check it out. And there's more to come on Crest in the Afternoon. I'm Gary Machuda. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What does this strange beatitude mean? Well, Father Victor Feltz points out that George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life embodies this beatitude. He has to sacrifice his bucket list items and his dreams in order to save the building and loan company of Bedford Falls. But by the end of the movie, he realizes that he's truly the richest man in town. The beatitudes challenge our understanding of happiness both as individuals and as a society. They're paradoxical, and they upend our priorities. We don't need anyone to tell us that good fortune, money, and success do often make us happy. 
but we wouldn't have thought that the road to riches in God's kingdom is paved with meekness. It doesn't mean denying your gifts, but it does challenge us to allow others to have the spotlight and to approach them with gentleness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. For more about the Beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com. Man failed the first test of freedom. He refused God's plan of love and chose freely to sin and made himself a slave to sin. That first sin gave mankind the gene or inclination to sin, which has given birth to numerous other sins. The Catholic Catechism reminds us that the exercise of freedom does not imply a right to say or do everything. Man is not totally self-sufficient, and his final goal is not his own self-interest and the enjoyment of earthly goals. When man violates the moral law, he becomes his own prisoner, disrupting neighborly fellowships while rebelling against divine truth. For freedom, Galatians tells us, Christ has set us free. He redeemed us from sin, which held man in bondage. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. I want you to have such confidence in the Lord that you'll find such hope and see the beauty of the Lord, the majesty of God. What did our Lord say, huh? If your sins are as scarlet, oh, what? What's going to happen? They shall be made white as snow. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. This program brought to you in part by the following nonprofit, Christendom College. Looking for a life-changing experience this summer that will strengthen your child's faith and immerse them in a joyful Catholic culture? Well, send them to Christendom College's high school summer program, The Best Week Ever. It's located in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, and The Best Week Ever is one of those gifts that keeps on giving. You can learn more and apply at bestweekever.com. Mention Al Cresta when applying. That's bestweekever.com. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. We are the pro-life generation, passionate about building the culture of life in our health care and in our nation. But not all health care options are equally pro-life, and some provide morally objectionable procedures. CMF Curo is different. CMF Curo is a pro-life Catholic health care ministry, providing a pathway for its members to build the culture of life in their health care choices, not destroy it. Learn more about CMF Curo at MyCatholicHealthCare.com. That's MyCatholicHealthCare.com. And welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I am Gary Machuda, sitting in for El Cresta. It's January 26th, Friday, and if you look at your liturgical calendars, you'll notice that's the Feast of Saints Timothy and Titus. Two very important figures actually received epistles from St. Paul. And on the older calendar, it was also the Feast of the Martyrdom of St. Polycarp. 
So let's talk a little bit about these important saints on our calendar and help us do that. We have Rob Corzine with us. Rob is Vice President of Academic Programs for the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. He was received into the Catholic Church in 1994. He also hosts EWTN's Genesis to Jesus with Dr. Scott Hahn. And you can check out all the great stuff that they do there at St. Paul Center. Just go to stpaulcenter.com. And Rob Corzine, welcome to Crest in the Afternoon. It's great to be with you. Yeah, it's always fun to to talk with you, Rob. You are a wealth of information, especially, you know, with your work in biblical theology along shoulders with great people like Dr. Scott Hahn, John Bergsma, and, and stuff. So the pleasure's all mine. <laughs> what, you, what you failed to mention was when I was received into the Church back in 1994, the man with his hand on my shoulder as my sponsor was Gary Machuda. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And alongside us, El Cresta with uh, Steve Ray. It was it was a great, joyous day. And uh, yeah, and just as, you know, joyous is these figures. I mean, what a feast day. You have Timothy and Titus, and then, like I said, the older calendar, you got St. Polycarp. Um, yeah, the, the new calendar, the 1970 calendar, likes to give us uh, sort of saint series. So <laughs> in, in August, we get uh, St. Monica as the prelude to St. Augustine, and then here we get Timothy and Titus as sort of uh, the follow-up or the encore to yesterday's feast of the conversion of St. Paul. And uh, mm. so, as you mentioned, they, uh, they were both they were recipients of uh, epistles of, uh, of St. Paul, the so-called pastoral epistles, but before that they were the deliverers of some of his earlier messages, his earlier epistles, were sent by the hands of of Timothy and Titus. They were really the his co-workers, uh, both in evangelizing, but really in beginning to um, to care for the churches that um, that St. Paul had founded. And so Timothy gets the unenviable task of the church in Ephesus, or maybe the enviable task, but it was a tall order uh, to take over over Ephesus. And then Titus is sent over his uh, his homeland uh, of the um, the island of Crete uh, as bishop. His uh, his relics are still there. Uh, actually, his skull in uh, in a big Greek Orthodox church uh, on the island there. Hmm. Really? Yeah, that's that's funny. So they they worked alongside Saint Paul in ministry and evangelism. Uh, and they were mailmen. They delivered epistles to people, and they also received epistles. So, they're they're very yes, literary. In the, <laughs> in the in the first century, there was no registered mail. Uh, so, if you wanted to make sure that this epistle is genuine, you sent it, you sent it with the messenger. Yeah. And so, Timothy and Titus were the um, were the guarantor that uh, that Corinth. And Philippi uh, and the Thessalonians were getting an authentic Pauline letter, uh, and then when he he was left, when Timothy was left as as bishop of Ephesus, he receives First uh, Timothy, uh, probably during Paul's uh, first captivity, uh, and then Titus falls in between them, and then Second Timothy was probably the very last of the, the Pauline epistles right before 
his martyrdom in Rome uh, around the year 67. Yeah. And uh, this is this is the mature, this is the sort of last testament of Paul encouraging these uh, these young bishops in their in their ministry. And it was, it was universally accepted for almost all of church history that these were authentic Pauline epistles. But in the 19th century, they were they were for the first time called into doubt, and um, hmm. and I think uh, you know, most uh, I think that's starting to tilt back. But but I think most normally trained biblical scholars now would still question the um, the authenticity of the uh, of the so-called pastoral epistles. But they do so on pretty thin grounds. Yeah, yeah, that would be a tough case to make. I think. You know, um, because these are epistles to persons. Uh, Paul didn't write, not to my to my recollection. I don't think he wrote to any other individuals. Is that correct? Uh, Philemon. Oh yes, forgot uh, Philemon. Well, yeah, at least the, yeah, it comes with uh, the sort of a, of a personal personal letter, but not but not in an official capacity. Right. Uh, right. To write writing to to bishops uh, is is what's going on. So when people point out. Wow, this, this really reads a lot differently than um, than his letters to churches. Well, I mean, letters to 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 priests from their bishops uh, or to bishops from their archbishops today read a lot different than uh, than public teaching, and uh, and so the the reasons for it are are pretty thin. And the ancient um, the ancient references to uh, to those letters and their and their authorship is like a who's who of uh of the early church and uh you know who support that the the earlier tradition so i think you're right it, it's not a hard case to make you really it requires a lot of uh of german education uh, <laughs> to uh in a 19th century mode to uh to doubt the authenticity of uh of these letters yeah you'd have to be brilliant to do so um so uh <laughs> Obviously, the only biographical information we have would probably be the, those epistles and, and the Acts of the Apostles. I mean, outside of extra biblical uh, material. Um, that's right, and that's actually that's one thing that sometimes people will people will raise uh, skeptically that when you when you look at the the sort of places and the the person you try and match the timeline of the pastoral epistles to the to the timeline of Acts. It doesn't match exactly, and um, and they would uh, would would point to that as problematic. I would point to that ex- exact same evidence on the other side. That if you were making it up, you would have made it match Acts. But if you knew historical information that wasn't recorded in Acts, you would put that down. Uh, and uh, so this uh, this is not a a reason for questioning, but a reason for confirming i think the um the authenticity of the of the pastoral epistles yeah um and it's got it's got pauline um you know, there are elements of teaching that we see elsewhere in paul but these are these are really unique um in their uh in their content and they're really short I mean, a really good thing you could do today would be uh take one or or the other of them i would i would go with second timothy and uh, and just choose it for your uh, for your spiritual reading uh, today. There's so much in there. Yeah. Um, both both the um, 
the pastoral instructions, you know, about prayer and intercession, men and women in the liturgy, ordaining bishops and deacons, um, ministry to widows and elders and slaves, uh, yeah, the dangers of error and wealth. There's there's a ton to there's a ton to, to chew on, and um, but one ironic thing that actually ties this date to the uh, to the old calendar is that when people questioned the authenticity of uh of those letters that they they were written by someone other than paul the person that was most commonly um pointed to was a a, a second century martyr by the name of saint polycarp the uh, the bishop of smyrna who was the the earlier uh, saint who was uh, who was memorialized today, mm. and uh, so that was that was kind of interesting. Saint um, Saint Polycarp was the very first martyr story. The martyrdom of Saint Polycarp is the very first martyr story we have outside the New Testament, and uh, and kind of sets the paradigm for how the Church thinks of and talks about martyrdom, and um, and fascinatingly. That document talks about martyrdom in a in a, a liturgical way, um, so much so that uh, that one modern uh, scholar of of ancient uh, ancient uh, church uh, says we can speak of uh, in the years following the martyrdom of Polycarp almost two liturgies: the private liturgy of the Eucharist and the public liturgy of martyrdom where Christians are bearing witness with their blo- own blood, as opposed to in the private uh, liturgy, receiving the blood of Christ. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's a really cool image for martyrdom. And, uh, and I mean, uh, the uh, martyrdom Polycarp has all sorts of really cool factoids, too, like uh, the fact that his bones were gathered. So you have an instance of uh, relics. Yes. Yeah, despite the Romans, I mean, the Romans knew that, uh, that that was the sort of thing Christians were into, and so they tried to burn the body so there would be no relics, but they gathered the bones anyway. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then you have an early witness to the, the practice of infant baptism, um, and as much as uh, Polycarp says he's been a follower of Christ for his entire 86 years, um, and uh, but that it's that liturgical language that always comes back to me. It's the the story is fascinating. He he's called before a Roman tribunal um, and and asked to affirm the uh, the divinity of the of the Roman gods and particularly the genius of the emperor, which he can't do. Um, and uh, and they they don't want to kill this old man. You can you can just see the. The anguish, or uh, in the in the words of this of this Roman judge, he's like this is a tiny little thing. You just do this tiny little thing. I really don't want to kill you. And he's like, I'm super happy to die. <laughs> and uh, and so at first they uh, at first they try and burn him, um, but uh, and the and this is often related not as a sort of legend from long ago, but at the um, the writer. We don't know who the writer was of the account, but uh, accounts it in, in the words of an eyewitness, uh, that the fire created a globe around him and didn't burn him. So he's there in the middle of this fire, and it gives off the smell of, breaking, of baking bread. Mm. 
Yeah, let's hit, let's hit pause right there. Yeah, we'll talk about that on the other side of the break. Uh, I'm Gary Machuda singing in for El Cresta. We're talking with Rob Corzine at St. Paul Center. Talking about Saints Timothy, Titus, Polycarp, and others. More to come right after this. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with the book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Dr. Ray Garendi. What's the definition of frustration? Frustration is the difference between the way it is and the way you want it to be. It's hard to change the way it is. The way it is sometimes is other people, life, circumstances. The way you want it to be is in your power to change. You can close the gap between reality and what you want. The smaller that gap, the less your frustration. It is always easier to change oneself than to change reality. Frustration isn't always what happens out there. It is how we look at what happens out there. Christ is the answer with Father John Ricardo. I repeat, I'm sure ad nauseum to the guys who are here, a line from Pope Benedict Emeritus now, who used to say over and over again, to be a Christian is not the result of an ethical choice, but the result of an event, an encounter, a meeting with the living God in the person of Jesus Christ. This and nothing less is what it means to be a Christian. So we said the new evangelization is new in ardor. That's a kind of old-fashioned word. What in the world is ardor? 
Ardor is zeal, fervor, passion. Are you passionate about Jesus? Passionate about Jesus. Are you zealous for Jesus? Are you fervent for Jesus? Are we fervent for the gospel? Are we passionate about helping this world come to know him? Back to Cresta in the afternoon. I'm Gary Machuda sitting in for El Cresta. We are talking about the saints of the day, Timothy and Titus. Also talking about uh, St. Polycarp, martyrdom of St. Polycarp, which is part of the old calendar. And uh, we're speaking with Rob Corzine of St. Paul Center. And Rob, right before the break, uh, you were just going to touch on one of my, I think, one of the most amazing uh, things among many amazing things in the authentic account of his martyrdom is when he was burned it's recorded that it smelled as if there was freshly baked bread. Yes, at least when they tried to burn him. So yeah. the fire, like, goes around him, and he's in this, what what seems like a like a fiery furnace and untouched. So there's a, there's a call back, right, to the Old Testament, the uh, you know, Daniel's friends, mm-hmm. and it gives off the aroma, we're told, of baking bread. And so finally, the uh, the Roman soldiers... Uh, pierce him with a sword uh, or with a spear uh, to kill him. But even that, uh, they were somewhat thwarted because so much blood came out that it put out the fire and they had to restart it in, in order to, to burn him. And uh, But it's not just his dramatic um, and, uh, and sort of Eucharistically imagined martyrdom. He, he would be, even apart from that, one of the key early figures of the Church. Uh, according to Irenaeus, he's a companion of Papias. He was another hearer of John, um, and was, by the Apostle John himself, established as the, the presbyter in, in Smyrna. Um, on his way to martyrdom, um, Ignatius of Antioch meets with him uh, and sends him a, a letter. Um, Irenaeus uh, the great first uh, systematic theologian in the Church uh, recalls you know, sitting under the teaching of St. Polycarp as a child. So he's part of the great katena, the handing on, the chain of, of Church teaching from right there at the, the font, from, from the apostles themselves. So Polycarp is a, is a key figure and kind of the beginning uh, of, uh, along with, Ignatius of Antioch, uh, of this idea of, of Christian martyrdom, of bearing witness to Christ with your blood. Um, the other uh, saint uh, uh, in the Roman martyrology today that really popped out for me uh, is St. Paula, hmm. who was the first female religious in the Church. She was born to phenomenal Roman wealth uh, from a long uh, line of senators, um, converted to Christianity, was widowed at an early age, and became one of these women uh, following around, uh, really funding and, and learning. She was a great, great student of Scripture under St. Jerome, um, and, and ended her days having founded a monastery for men, led by St. Jerome in Bethlehem, and herself becoming 
the um, the head of a of a house of women religious in Bethlehem, and um, for the first several centuries of the church, the standard of sainthood was martyrdom. But this comes shortly after the conversion of of Constantine, and so we're now in the in the four hundreds, and martyrdom's just not happening anymore. And uh, even after the terror, people who had living memory of the terrors of the Diocletian persecution, Jerome talks of people who are now becoming nostalgic for the age of martyrdom. And, uh, you know, just the good old days when everybody really, really held the faith. And Jerome uh, chides them. He says, do not think that there is only martyrdom in the shedding of blood. There is always martyrdom. And so today in the Roman martyrology, we, the description of Paula uh, at the end of this life of dedication and study uh, is that she died at the end of her long martyrdom. So it's the beginning is, is, uh, is uh, Polycarp and, and Ignatius are in some ways the continuation of, of Stephen and the, the, the sort of Christian narrative of the martyrdom of blood. Paula really stands there at the beginning of this this new understanding of white martyrdom, that even apart from being called to shed our blood, we are called to radically give our lives uh, to Christ and through Christ to our Christian brothers and sisters and to the world. There is, in Jerome's words, always martyrdom. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, often we talk about dry martyrdom and wet martyrdom, and uh, we're all called to to one or the other, right? And in some ways, white martyrdom might be a little tougher because it's like every day you have to lay down your life and, and pick up your cross and follow Jesus. Yeah, I think it reminds me of uh, that reminds me of, of Flannery O'Connor's uh, witty quip. She's like, I think I think I might be a saint, you know, if if they could uh, if they could make me a martyr, but they'd have to kill me quickly. <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah, it's, uh, th- I'm glad that you put that on the list, because I'm familiar with Paula, but I didn't know much about her uh, background other than uh, St. Jerome and herself has a correspondence of letters. So, you know, a lot like Polycarp and Titus and Timothy, you know, we have this literary cl- connection. Yeah, Paula, Paula's got the money, like nobody really since Helena to go around and visit all of the holy sites and uh, and to found institutions and her her correspondence is like a who's who uh, of the great Christians of her age. So not just you know Jerome, but Melania the Elder and um, oh who am I? I'm uh, uh, the Nicomedia. Um, but it's 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 really wild. Her so she's she's literary. She's brilliant. She has a daughter uh, who's also uh, a saint, uh, Saint mm-hmm. Eustochia, who was in that in that same community. It's um, as we see this a lot in the fourth, uh, the, the fourth and, and fifth centuries. These clusters of saints who know each other and um, and communicate with each other, and it's a, it's a reminder that none none of us is living the Christian life on our own. There's a there's a reason why great saints uh, come in clusters is because they. They sanctify each other. Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, Rob, we have a couple of minutes left in the segment, and there's so many great things happening with the St. Paul Center, and, and you're kind of like in the center of a lot of that. So why don't you give us an update? Uh, what's cooking over there? Well, the big news was yesterday, uh, at the end of several years of, uh, of hard work, we cut the ribbon on our brand-new world headquarters in Steubenville, Ohio, nice. uh, on the Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul. And uh, so people who are on their way to Stephenville or coming by or anywhere in the neighborhood should should come by and see us. But one of the big things that that building is going to allow us to do is take our our productions to the next level. And so for this Lent, we're doing two series. One, uh, we're, we're calling the, both of them Exodus and Exile. So there's, there's 40 days of Lent. There's 40 chapters uh, in the book of Exodus. And so John Bergsma... Uh, one of the great Bible teachers of our day, who has both the depth of scholarship and uh, and the pedagogy to really be a great scripture teacher, is going to go take one chapter of Exodus every day of Lent and do maybe a 10-minute uh, both reading and uh, and reflection on it. So I highly recommend signing up for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can have that delivered to your computer, to your phone. But then Dr. Hahn is going to do a series on exile. We just published a book of his, called Catholics in Exile, and uh, as often happens, you get the book out, and you really love it, and you start talking about it, and then Scott will say, you know, as soon as the book is published, I start learning more things that I wish I could have put in the book. Mm. And so he's going he's gonna to do a series of talks uh, on this paradigm of, of exile, uh, which I think is really, really important and really timely. You know, we need to think of ourselves in, in these times through the biblical paradigm of, of exile. It's not the case that, um, that we have no place in the world, but if we feel a little disoriented, if we look around and we don't feel at home in this world, you know, it's not that we don't have a home, it's that we have a heavenly home and we're not there. Um, but exiles are not just strangers and enemies, right? The exiles in Jeremiah are called to bless the place where the Lord has sent you. And so we have a relationship to this world, uh, but it are, it's not that, that that relationship is not that it's our home. It is this mission field where we're, we're called to live and serve and maintain our citizenship in heaven. And so he'll do a series of talks uh, based on that theme, uh, drawing much from the book but adding to it. And again, you can sign up for that. Uh, for free uh, throughout Lent, and then it comes with a bunch of other stuff, including, uh, I think, free access during Lent to all of the courses to uh, our Emmaus Academy. So go to stpaulcenter.com, that's just stpaulcenter.com, and I think you can sign up for that starting uh, this Saturday, and uh, and then it'll actually get kicked off uh, starting on Ash Wednesday. There's another one of those interesting uh, situations where the old calendar and the new calendar uh, are switched. Ash Wednesday this year is going to fall on February the 14th. And so for us in the Catholic world, it will supersede um, the Feast of St. Cyril and Methodius. But the secular world on February 14th celebrates, according to the old Roman calendar, St. Valentine's Day. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So... Uh, boy, I, I love that. Just great material, great presenters. Uh, 
and you just go to stpulsecenter.com. You get that for free. I don't see how people can miss it. And, and, and if you sign up for sign up for Emmaus Academy, I highly recommend checking out uh, your course on the gospel truth. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> you know, it's great you because you guys are kind of moving out of the exile period, right? You, you've been moving around over the years, and now you finally have an abode. And uh, now you got to move all of Scott Hahn's books into the new building. Well, we have all of uh, the late Father Francis Martin's books, uh-huh. and Monsignor Graham's, and uh, the great Capuchin moral theologian, Father Ronald Lawler, and Monsignor Michael Wren. So as we set up the library, we'll see what space we have left. But I think we may be cataloging Scott's library, but not moving it right away. <laughs> Yeah, that would be a chore, and uh, I would not uh, envy the person to do that. Yeah, as as research um, as research assets go, those are going to be increasingly important um, because starting this fall, Franciscan University is going to have a uh, a doctorate of sacred theology program. So, so both the both the St. Paul Center and I and I think Dr. Hans Library as well is going to be a really key um, asset or resource. Uh, to those uh, to those researchers. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, uh, you know, the reason I bring it up is because both of us have a lot of books, and we know how tough it is to move those things. Those things are really heavy. Yes. Well, just just the, the like, 60 boxes or so that were in my old office moved to my new office uh, have re-reminded me of what uh, what a serious thing it is for people with the, with the reading habit to uh to move house mm-hmm. um it's also a delight to, to sort of lay hands on all your books and reorganize them and and uh meet old friends and uh and then re reevaluate your mental guilt pile of books you bought but haven't read yet yeah exactly exactly well rob thank you so much for coming on crust in the afternoon we appreciate it always a delight all right that's rob corzine stpaulcenter.com check it out great resources that avail yourself during Lent. Accidents are the leading cause of life-threatening injuries, but few Americans are prepared. My Life Angels creates your pro-life healthcare durable power of attorney accessible anytime on smartphones and alerts loved ones if you enter a hospital ER, empowering them to protect you. You can protect yourself and your family. Use code AVE at checkout today and My Life Angels will donate 35% of your initial membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at mylifeangels.com. The Catholic Church teaches that Jesus Christ is a literally and wholly present body and blood, soul and divinity under the appearances of bread and wine. Feeding 5,000 from a boy's five barley loaves and two fish, as recorded in John chapter 6, is quite a miracle. Yet the next day, Jesus downplays it in verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Likewise, God's provision of manna to the Israelites in the desert was also a great miracle. Yet Jesus similarly downplays it in verse 49. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, but they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. 
Jesus is clearly stating that his Eucharist is greater than both of these amazing miracles, and the Catholic Church absolutely takes him at his word. Examining the truths of the Catholic faith, this is faithforensics.org. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? stanthonyservices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at stanthonyservices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. Welcome back to Crusta in the Afternoon. I'm Gary Machuda sitting in for El Crusta. Yeah, boy, there's so much riches being in the Catholic faith. I mean, we were talking with Brian Topham at the beginning of this hour about the importance of prayer, and there's just so many great prayers that are available to us that we can avail ourselves of. And then you have the martyrologies and the saints, you know, Titus, Timothy, Polycarp, Paula, not only uh, do we have their writings, but we also have their biographies, and those are so enriching as well. And uh, so let's let's avail ourselves of it. And talking about great information, too, I'd appreciate it if you could check out my channel on YouTube. It's called The Apocrypha Apocalypse, where we talk about why Catholic Bibles and, and Orthodox Bibles have seven Old Testament books that Protestants don't. Thank you so much for listening, and have a great evening. Bye-bye. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.